Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this day, we thank you for it. We pray that it would comfort and encourage us, teach us and lead us to new things. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a fairly well-documented fact that far from being a book concerned only with the achievements and works of men, that the Bible tells the story of many women. Think for a moment how that is so with those women who balance out the story of the men, such as Eve with Adam, Sarah with Abraham, Rebecca with Isaac, Mary with Joseph, just to name a few. And there are also many other women whose stories are told in their own right, women such as Rahab, Ruth, Deborah, and this woman from 2 Kings chapter 8, who is reintroduced into the main plot of the story, a woman we met some weeks ago. The woman is known only to us as the woman from Shunem, whose son died and yet was resurrected by Elisha in chapter 4. In this chapter, chapter 8, she reappears in the story, and what we find out about her, like so many of the female characters we encounter in the scriptures, we find out that she was in a tight spot, a situation that required help. And while here in the story she set out to appeal to the king for that help, she in fact found that the help she needed came from God. And ultimately, it was he who would be her help. Now before we get to the text and to her story in some detail, did you notice something about the text that's a little different to all the other stories relating to Elisha that we've looked at. Full marks to you if you picked up that while Elisha is named in the text, he doesn't actually appear in the story. And did you also see something else? That Elisha's servant Gehazi is mentioned, although when we last left Gehazi in chapter 5, he'd been struck with leprosy as a punishment for his greed. So it's a bit of a surprise to not have Elisha in the story and yet to have Gehazi, which maybe suggests that the story might be chronologically misplaced, although please don't take that to mean that I infer the story isn't true. So then, what of the woman from Shunem and her need that our text reveals? To bring her story to life and to your mind, let me suggest then three headings upon which the story revolves and then some points of application upon which we'll conclude. First, in verse 1, note that God had concern for this woman's future. This unnamed woman from Shunem had already undergone much hardship and trial. The loss of her son, even though he was restored to her, was a painful trial to bear that would have stretched and extended anyone, any believer, And if it was in the midst of this very trial that Elisha had spoken to this woman about the forthcoming famine, then you could understand that the news may have been too much for anyone or her to bear. It seems that from time to time we meet God's people who have to shoulder one trial and burden only to have another place directly upon them. We can look at them and decide that that God is not being fair to them, At least it's our first thought that comes to mind. But then who are we to make judgments like that 
when we don't see the whole picture. What we can say with regard to this woman was that the Lord was dealing with her, that his concern was for her, because it was through the words of his prophet Elisha that the difficult days ahead for this woman, and perhaps for her family, were avoided. In the day of approaching trouble for all of Israel, God didn't forget her. In fact, he sent his servant Elisha to warn her of the approaching famine so that she could take action and remove herself from the area until the famine years had passed. So we can say, with that in mind, that God was in a very real way actively directing this woman's paths to spare her from this trial being added to her previous trial and she in return, of course, had to act upon the direction that God had given her was not as though God just picked her up in a whirlwind like he had done with Elijah and whisked her off to heaven or off to some other place for safety. No, he warned her through Elisha. But he left the packing and the sorting, the moving and the setting up to her. And all this was quite possibly a real test of faith. Like Abraham of old, she was called to leave behind that which she knew to go to where she knew not. It's also likely that at this stage the the signs of famine had not yet taken hold. It may have been that the fields were ripe for harvest, her pantry full of food. It may even have been that she had the faith to believe that God could keep her alive in the famine and stay on in her home like the widow in Elijah's day who both housed and fed herself and her son and Elijah. Either way, the text tells us that she accepted the testimony of Elisha and acted upon the warning. In chapter 4, it was her, her remarkable faith that was evident, but here the focus is upon her deeds. In other words, she had them both, faith and deeds, and these went hand in hand. She believed and she obeyed and she took off and without hesitation went to the land of the Philistines for a seven-year sojourn away from her home. Second then, notice from verse 2 that God was active in this woman's present. The fact that she returned alive from the land of the Philistines was evidence enough of the hand of God upon her. Not only in the land of the Philistines did the Lord provide her with food, but he also kept her alive in the midst of a people who did not know him or walk in his ways. He kept her alive in a foreign land, and not only that, he kept her close to himself. No doubt those seven years were nothing like a seven-year holiday in a tropical resort. This was enemy territory that the woman had been sent to, a place where the word of God and the people of God had long been held in contempt and despised. Yet in these long years of exile, though we are told nothing of what it cost her and nothing of how she dealt with the people who lived there, I think it's reasonable to assume that because she went there trusting God and knowing God's leading, and because she came back trusting God and knowing God's leading, then in the in-between years, those seven years far from her home, she would also have been trusting God and knowing God's leading. See, those God 
sends far away he doesn't forget. Think of Abraham who left where he was to go to the land of Canaan and then to Egypt. Think of Joseph and far from his home in Egypt. And think of David who lived in the land of the Philistines. Think of the exiles taken away to live in Babylon. Did God forget them because they crossed borders and lived among people of a different language or culture? Is not God the God of the ends of the earth? And is it a problem to him whether we are in town A or country B? Obviously, the answer is plain. There is no difference to him because he's everywhere at the same time. Theologians call this God's ubiquity, which simply means his equal awareness, or to put it in layman's terms, the fact that he is everywhere all at once. His head was not in Israel and his feet in the land of the Philistines. Rather, he was and is everywhere at the same time. Third from verses three to six. Note how God reworked the woman's past. You might imagine the woman's disappointment on her arrival back in Israel after seven years away. You might imagine the growing sense of joy as they finally made their way back to their homeland and perhaps to their cottage just over the next hill, almost in sight. What a disappointment to find strangers occupying the house and working the fields. One of my worst nightmares as a child was to knock on the front door of my parents' home only to have a stranger appear and say that my parents didn't live there anymore. Though I thought I did. Can you imagine leaving your home for seven years and coming back in 2028 only to find that squatters had moved in and take over. But worse than that, these squatters have no regard to the fact that it's your name on the letterbox and your name on the title deeds, your boxes in the garage and your DNA scattered through the interior. Apparently, though, this was a common experience in Israel. One commentator says it was common for petty thieves to confiscate the property of anyone who is exiled for a time or who moved temporarily away from the district. This was especially true of widows and orphans who had very little chance of having the property restored unless they had the services of someone of influence who could act as their mediator. To make matters worse, this woman's homelessness and grief were no doubt compounded by the fact that she obeyed God's will. She had trusted the word of the Lord through Elisha. And now what? Should she now suppose that she had been forsaken and that the prophet misled her? No doubt all of these thoughts entered her mind, just like they entered the mind of the disciples as they watched the body of their master laid in the grave. They had trusted God, but to what effect? Now he was dead and all hope was gone. But God was in it all. And in the midst of this apparent spanner in the works, there was no need for her to panic. Like the widow in the parable Jesus told in Luke 18, whom we'll hear about next week, who took her case on appeal to a judge, this woman also pursued the matter in the court system as she took her case 
to the highest tribunal of the land, to the king himself. Her need was urgent, and it didn't matter if the king had proven to be stingy and unfair in the past. Now it's at this point that the story has a strange twist that some might refer to as coincidence, while others would see as God's perfect timing. The woman had no idea that there in the king's chamber already stood Gehazi. We are not told why he was there, nor for how long he had been there, but we are told that as he was there, he was in the process of telling the king about all the wonderful miracles of the prophet Elisha, his master, no doubt including the parts that he had been involved in, especially the story of the raising of a particular woman's son. He no doubt presented all this to the king as only an eyewitness could, so it's reasonable to assume that the king would have been impressed by this story. But the king would have even been more impressed when at that exact moment in walked the woman. The timing could not have been more perfect, nor more effective, and with it the desired effect that the king listened to her complaint and restored her to the land that had been stolen from under her feet. What a great story! What a great restoration! And what a confirmation of the words that the Lord had spoken long ago to Sarah. Nothing is too difficult for God to do. And also a confirmation of the promise in Joel chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. Can you picture in your mind the woman leaving the presence of the king, winding her way home, perhaps reflecting again upon the truth that she was indebted not just once, but twice to the prophet that God had sent into her life. Now, in something more of a remarkable coincidence, while I was preparing this message, a newsletter from a mission society came across my desk, telling of a recent experience one dark rainy night in the heart of Uganda, where a missionary found himself, through no fault of his own, being interrogated in a police station without his ID. When in walked a man whom he had not seen for ten years, and even then that was in the Sudan, who was able to testify to the police that this man, this missionary, was who he claimed to be. And just goes to show that the Lord still has his people in all sorts of places, according to his master plan. Three great conclusions, then, are left for us to observe and to take home. The first of these is the providential care of the Lord. Doesn't the whole text serve as an illustration of that wonderful text we heard this morning from Romans 8, 28? We know that all things work for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purposes. Wasn't it God who sent her away? 
Wasn't it God who kept her safe? Wasn't it God who brought her back? Wasn't it God who worked out all the details? He is not for one moment called the God who is all-wise for no reason. He does not simply allow the circumstances of our lives to change up and down for no reason. Instead, he weaves into the whole picture a variety of different coloured threads, both light and dark, to create what he desires for his good pleasure. And with his own people, his loved ones, does God ever fail them? Can we cry out and say to him, God, you have let me down? The story is able to refocus our faith on the Lord who knows the one sparrow who falls, and he who writes the names of his children on the palms of his hands and never forgets them. Second, there's a reminder here about the power of the testimony of the Lord's people. We touched upon this a few weeks ago when we considered Elisha's encounter with the Syrian army general Naaman and how God used a short but effective witness of a servant girl from Israel to turn Naaman's heart towards seeking out the prophet Elisha. Well, here's another story about testimony, and this time the testimony is directed to one who ought to have known about the Lord, none other than the very king of Israel himself. See, what makes this story more amazing is that if the king who is unnamed in the text was King Jehoram, a descendant from the line of Omri, just as the wicked King Ahab was. And you remember, if you know your Old Testament kings, that one of the most wicked things ever done by a king in the scriptures was done by Ahab, who had Naboth, the owner of a vineyard, he had him killed in order that he might take the vineyard for himself. But this story, though it involves another king from the same family, has a completely different outcome. Some scholars have pointed out that when this woman left her property, it actually would have become the possession of the king. So when the king gave back the woman all her property and all the money he would have made from its sale, the king just did a reverse Ahab. Think about that carefully. This isn't just a story about a miracle, but this is a story about a change of heart that led to a great act of justice and generosity. And what caused this to happen? Why did the king do this? The thing that inspired this king was the retelling of the story of God's great deeds through his servant Elisha. Think about that. There was no coercion. There was no bribery. There was no twisting of arms behind backs. There was no under-the-table payments, no political grandstanding, not even threats of judgment from the prophet. The key to all this change was that they sat down together and Gehazi told the king about the amazing deeds of the Lord. And on that basis, the king's heart was changed. It was in the power of the spoken testimony that God's people can bring to this world. For it's we who know what God has done, and it's we who know what God can do. It's all in the power of testimony. Never underestimate what your words can do. 
Then third here, learn of the fact that the suffering we endure will be far outweighed by the rewards that God gives. The impending and immediate outcome of the woman's circumstances seemed to be heading for a tragic tale, but instead the final outcome was triumphant. So it is with those who walk by faith. At times we're prone to look around us and see that the pieces are not yet all fitting and the waves are higher than the boat. But those who are in God's keeping and are obedient to his will will never be far from his keeping power. In 2 Corinthians 4, thinking about perspective, Paul writes, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so, if this be true, then friends, no matter what you endure, you are always going to end up richly rewarded. No matter how dire the circumstance, no matter how deep the trouble you find yourselves in. And like it or not, there are times, aren't there, when all hope seems lost. The darkness has never felt so great, and the dawn seems longer off than ever before. But remember in the scriptures, this is always counted, always counted by the truth that nothing can separate us from God. Paul had this in mind when later in Romans 8 he wrote, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Will you take comfort in that this morning? Past, present and future, all is in the Lord's hands. David said in Psalm 18 verse 30, something that our friend, the woman from Shunem, would have given a hearty amen to. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Trust him. For those who trust him with their lives and with their times, they will find that the Lord never, ever lets go of his own. Not in this life and not in the next. Will you do that this morning? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how hard it is, because we don't see the end from the beginning like you do, to trace your hand through the rise and fall of our circumstances. And we are thankful that we have this story this morning of the woman from Tunum, whose circumstances looked dire, but you were involved. You worked all things according to the counsel of your will to bring about all that you had planned for her. We pray, as we consider our own situation, help us to trust you. When circumstances look dim, when things are hard, help us to know that we can come with every confidence, every assurance, and bring every particular need to you. You're a God of great compassion, of great mercy. 
So hear us as we pray. Have mercy upon us, Lord. Forgive our tentative faith. Forgive when we blame you for things that seem to go wrong and we are quick to assume we know your mind and your will. Help us to do these things well, to say, it is well with my soul. The Lord has his way. Now we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.